Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Today marks my 50th show since the beginning of Burned by Books in the spring of 2020, at the start of early COVID, when many of us were stuck inside, anxious, and a bit stir-crazy. Truthfully, it began as a way for me to divert my attention from the political chaos and the listing tilt toward fascism, which characterized the waning days of Trump, and from the pandemic, which had already taken the life of our dear friend's parent and showed no signs of slowing. It began with me reaching out to my friend Eleanor Henderson, a writer whom I love and a friend whom I depend upon to be the first guest. She was patient, as it took me no less than three separate sessions to even get the audio to record. It was an amateurish production, but Eleanor's brilliance came through. I got some family members to listen. They all thought it was far too ponderous and heavy on my part, both in tone and questioning, and I started to pay attention to the podcasts that I most admired. Everything started slowly. I relied on patient and kind writer friends to come on the show and let me ask them inchoate questions about their work. But what was clear to me from the very beginning is that a book's podcast that concentrated on interviews with authors I admire was something I wanted to dedicate time to. I'm slowly but surely getting the hang of things. I joined the New Books Network as an academic partner to their enormous and well-run project of bringing together many different podcasts, both those made in-house and others like mine produced outside but published within their group. I've benefited from very lucky interview gets, like Kevin Wilson, who came on very early in the podcast's life and who managed to cut through my bad audio quality with his extraordinary humanity and empathy. Percival Everett didn't laugh me off email when I reached out to him, and he gave one of the most interesting interviews that I'm ever likely to take part in. And Alexandra Kleeman was so smart and insightful that she changed the way I read contemporary fiction, while also giving me an interview that helped put Burned by Books on the map. Ellie Eaton, Cheryl Lulian Tan and Joanna Rakoff have plugged the show in ways that have changed my listenership exponentially, and I mean that in a proper mathematical sense. And the friends who have been listeners and supporters from the start have been my core audience and the people I make shows for, even when I am overworked. These dear friends include, but are not limited to, Corey McElhaney, Carl Fisher, Christy Beveridge, Miller Susan, Kendra Senna, and Lucia Cardenas. So, on the occasion of my 50th episode, I want to thank all my extraordinary guests, and most of all, those of you who listen, 
that I've never met in person. It always amazes me that there are people out there who look forward to hearing the show, and for each and every one of you, I am grateful. It is a stroke of luck that my 50th episode should happen to be with the author of one of the best books of the year, and likely of many years to come, Alice Elliot Dark, whose novel Fellowship Point is your must-read for the summer. I know you'll love hearing from Alice, who is thoughtful, genuine, brilliant, and as generous as her writing would lead you to believe. She's a writer's writer, and I'm so happy that she will mark this special anniversary with me. Thank you all again, and now let's welcome Alice Elliot Dark to the 50th episode of Burned by Books. Welcome back. I first heard about Alice Elliot Dark's new novel, Fellowship Point, from Joanna Rakoff, when she gave it one of the most enthusiastic recommendations ever to be offered on this show. She marked it as one of the great novels of her life, with characters that she wanted to stay with forever. It would soon be the case that she was not alone in her love of Fellowship Point. Kate Christensen writes in the New York Times book review, what first appears to be the story of two old ladies in Maine turns out to be a sophisticated inquiry into the course of female lives with time as an instrument of revelation, folding in on itself, opening out, revealing the multi-layered histories of both Polly and Agnes as a means of showing a kind of existential truth. John Frank in the Boston Globe wrote that its life is rooted in loyalty to humanness, to people so real that you can see, hear, and smell them. And Helen McAlpin describes the novel's complexity and pace in the length of an absorbing 19th century epic, writing that the novel's various plot lines dovetail with amazing grace, culminating in a moving, well-earned climax. And the reviewery goes on and on. I would soon after find myself in the world of Fellowship Point, and likewise despair at leaving it. Jeff Nunakawa, professor of Victorian literature at Princeton, once told a class that I was a member of that George Eliot was the last writer to know something about everything. While this certainly isn't true in a quantitative way about either of the Eliots, George or Alice, <laughs> there is a palpable sense one has in reading Fellowship Point that it might be about everything. This is especially surprising because it is on the surface about such a small and niche community of the privileged of Philadelphia who have the luxury of owning property for summering in Maine. The story follows Agnes and Polly, two octogenarian friends who have spent a lifetime joined by the experience of living in that extraordinary natural beauty of Fellowship Point, a coastal geography once enjoyed by the Native Americans of the area. The two women who have shared so much are quite different. Agnes, the author of a famed children's book series about a girl called Nan, has no children and is unmarried, while Polly has children and a husband, a minor academic who makes demands on Polly's time and interests. When a young editorial assistant and single mother, Maud, begins entreating Agnes to write a memoir about her writing life, 
stories of youthful love and hope begin to unspool involuntarily from Agnes's letters and memories. But what at first seems the long arc of a full life is paralleled by the deep time of the natural spaces of Fellowship Point, in particular a pristine spot of land that is a nesting ground for many birds, holds a much longer and more profound story of time's passage. What is to become of that land, which Agnes wishes to be made into a nature preserve, becomes the catalyst to unearth social fissures that may divide families and lifelong friends. Set in the backdrop of the 1960s and the early 2000s in the shadows of the falling towers of September 11th, Alice Elliott Dark weaves a narrative of time as the macro and micro driver of our relationships to the natural world. It is likely that you already know Alice from her award-winning short story collection In the Gloaming and her novel Think of England, but Fellowship Point will cement her work in your history of reading. It is a great honor to introduce Alice Elliott Dark. Thank you so much, Chris. That was an amazing summary of the book. I wish I could do that. <laughs> well, thank you for being here, Alice. Um, Fellowship Point is so enchanting because of its two main characters, Agnes and Polly, women in their 80s who are richly and complexly textured characters, full of ambitions, loves, losses, regrets, and talents, both latent and realized. You must have considered that these are not the average heroines of the contemporary novel. Why did you want to represent the intellectual and emotional lives of octogenarians? And why do you think so few American novels fo focus on the lives of older people? Well, those are good questions. Um, I, you know, the more I've thought about this book post-writing it, um, I really see clearly that my fantasies turned into themes. Uh, not the other way around. So the characters came to me. They both came to me, Polly first and Agnes later. And I just started following them around uh, for a while before I knew what was happening with them. And I didn't really step back to consider that they were 80 until I was pretty far into the book. And mm -hmm. someone said, what are you writing about? And I said, two 80-year-old women. And I stopped, like I stopped dead. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, what am I doing? This is like career suicide because <laughs> no one writes books about 80-year-old women or no one wants to read one. And I think I actually did, at that point I got stubborn and I was like, okay, well, I'm taking that on because I've always loved old women myself. And I find this kind of woman, Agnes, a very fascinating person, someone who has money, who is able to set up her day the way she wants to set up her day, who doesn't have to answer to anyone, um, and therefore is extremely privileged in my mind. Uh, so what does she do with that? You know, what's she going to do with that level of freedom, which most people don't have? for one reason or another. Um, I And I think to answer the, the, the last question, I don't think people write about older people because they are out of the economy. I think it's as simple as that. They don't play a role in uh, the structures of our 
economic culture. The same for children, but children will. So they're mm -hmm. still they're still somewhat interesting to us because we can see traits in children that may play out later in life to be somewhat important. But with old people, that's not the case. Uh, they really are expendable. We've heard so many conversations about that with COVID, like, you know, are we really going to try and keep these people safe? And the answer is no, we're not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a pretty cut and dried. And this is true, I would say, in the history of the world, uh, most of the time. There are a few cultures and they're raised up in front of our eyes as thinking that the old are the wise. But really, that is a small percentage of old people who get that kind of respect. But I, in my experience, older people, men and women, are just as in life as anyone else. They're still changing, they're still growing, they still have interests, they still want things. Uh, and I really wanted to fully portray that someone at that age is still able to turn a plot, is still able to do mm -hmm. things that are really monumental, uh, and is, is valuable to the culture. I think older women are really an undervalued commodity, um, not just because they're not really in the economy per se, but politically. I think there's a huge amount of political will that is untapped in older women right now. I've not heard it put in those terms before that older people are outside of the economy, but that strikes me as just absolutely true. Uh, and I've, I think that's a, a, a remarkable explanation that is sadly probably the case. The, yeah, I think it's true. <laughs> The novel moves geographically between the Philadelphia area and Maine. There's a long history, longer than Agnes and Polly's story, of wealthy Philadelphians summering in coastal Maine. Why were these two very different environs important to the story you wanted to tell? I am familiar with both of those landscapes. That's the primary reason, because place is the most important thing to me in writing. It's what draws me to the desk every day. I love to go to places and I don't live in those places anymore. <clears throat> um, so I love to think about them and they have become imaginative places for me where I can change things a little bit from the way they really are. So that was one thing. Another thing is there's something about Philadelphia that's very interesting, which is that it was founded differently than anywhere else, founded by Quakers, founded by a land grant given by the King of England to William Penn. <clears throat> and that history really makes a mark on the city that's different from New York, Boston, some of the older colonial cities. Um, and Philadelphia is pretty proud of it, too. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I went to Shipley, which is a girls' school in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. And some of the girls in my class were from families like these. They had old families, old Philadelphia families. They had families that were descended from 
signers of the declaration, lots of pedigree. I wasn't one of them, but I was fascinated by them. And I was very fascinated by this kind of security that, um, that I imagined they felt. I don't know if they really felt it or not, but that I imagined they felt by having such a long and recognized history in the place where they lived and also having you know, these old houses to go to in Maine where there were just legacies of items and histories and ancestors and aunt so-and-so and, uncle, you know, all of that. It really attracted me. Um, you know, much as I was somewhat, um, I suppose, turned off by the privilege of it, I was also deeply attracted to it. I was ambivalent about it, I suppose. So I really wanted to go into that place and think about it more deeply. The the Quakers of Philadelphia are the heart of the novel. They're both a people of a religious tradition of equality and peacefulness and modesty and a cultural niche of, as you're describing with the Shipley kids, of extreme privilege and exclusivity. It seems to me that you're interested in paradoxes between the kind of modesty and privilege and and pacifism and power. Could you talk about your interest in the Quakers specifically? I love the way you put that because that's very much what attracted me to writing about the Quakers. I'm not a Quaker, but I certainly grew up around them. Um, my stepfather was a Quaker, and I went to the meeting with him in, at Haverford College um, very often. And I was really exposed to Quakerism. Shipley had been a Quaker school once upon a time, and it retains a lot of its Quaker ways, or did when I was there. And I think exactly that paradox of being one of the colonial cultures that really remained successful, whereas most of them didn't. You know, most of them are gone. We only read about them in history books. The Quakers are still thriving. Um, they've, you know, they made a lot of adaptations to history in ways that other, ways that other of the colonial cultures didn't. Like there's not really Puritans anymore as such. There's not shakers anymore as such, um, you know, all of those things. But I think that I think there is a lot of paradox in the true belief. The Quakers, I know, they really do believe in their values, but they don't find it a contradiction to make money if it's done in under the terms of their values. This has gotten harder in the modern world. <laughs> you know, I think I think like in the in the world where uh, of the past of the book that I write about, where these two Quaker brothers are involved in business in Philadelphia. What business in Philadelphia is very fascinating, um, a whole other subject. But that I did a lot of research about that doesn't appear in the book. But they were still able to be in the business world, thinking that they were doing it with good values, being just to the workers, doing the, you know, all of these things, which I don't think um, is as important to people anymore. But it brings in an aspect of the novel that 
I really like about that I really like and I wanted to why I decided to write about very rich people um, is that I I think this is a child thing of mine and partly from Shipley too because we were told ad nauseum you're very lucky you're very lucky therefore you have to give back you know it, it was like mm-hmm. um, an absolute equation that we were taught from kindergarten and I, you know, I think that's true of, of kind of the, not, the kind of novel that I'm writing into, which is the 19th century novel, where there are a lot of people of privilege depicted in those novels. And what do they do with it? Like, are they going to use that privilege to practice morality on the highest possible level that they can afford? You know, poor people can't always afford to practice values at the same level because maybe they have to do things that if they you know if they had money they wouldn't have to do i think it's Mm -hmm. just a different a different set of possibilities so i always am interested i'm interested in the quakers for that because they do have these values that they're meant to think about and live up to all the time and they do also have like you know a healthy economic place in our culture and how do those things square up and what do they do with it i think it's so interesting you know having grown up in the in the philadelphia area myself how present that quaker ethos is there and how absent it is from much of the rest of the country or at least what i've observed where uh, in other places you say oh well quakers have had such a strong and continued impact on shaping of the country and most people will say what who I know. and have a vague sense of it but you know really at the heart of the the founding geography of the country is this group of of very committed and and ultimately privileged quakers i yeah i agree with that i think it i think it is um mysteriously unstudied and yet it is extremely influential um a lot of the values that the Quakers practice, I guess, would be considered Christian values, but they're emphasized differently in Quakerism. And something I go into into the book just peripherally, but the value of pacifism. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I think the Quakers are the only major religion in this country that really have pacifism as a central value, and they really practice it. They don't go into the army. They don't, you know, they don't, they don't participate in um, war, which is amazing to have powerful, a powerful economic religion not participate in that aspect of our country. Um, and they also have a value which was really important to me and that I gave to Agnes particularly of egalitarianism, which is unusual. Um, They came in as a religion where women were powerful, women were equal, always seen as equal in the religion, um, which isn't true of other religions Mm -hmm. because they don't have, I mean, there are, there are, there are Quaker uh, meetings 
that do have a sort of pastoral presence and some a leader, but traditionally not. And so there's no one standing up where you every week you see the guy standing up. They don't have that. And I wanted to really reflect the effect of having an egalitarian ethos represented in a person, Agnes, who takes it to her veganism, she takes it to her relationship with the natural world, she takes it to all the people around her, she just sees everything as having equal rights, not obviously not equal power, but equal rights. That leads in really nicely to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is the way that you elucidate the deep structures of sexism for women of all ages. It is perhaps most pronounced in the case of Polly, who dampens her own ambitions and curiosities to care for the needs of others, principally her demanding and pedantic husband, Dick. But you show how each woman character, principal and secondary, old and young, carries with them the unseen weight of having to be viewed and evaluated by men, often not as their equals. Do you see Agnes and Polly as barometers for how things have changed or for how they have stayed largely the same, but with different levers of control? I see them as barometers of how things have not changed. Um, mm -hmm. I don't see much difference in my lifetime, except going back to the idea of economics. Um, I think women were very quickly co-opted into the workforce after second wave feminism. Second wave feminism, I was alive as a pretty much as a teenager during that time, but very involved in feminist ideas. And so much of it was about liberating everyone, liberating men, liberating the family, liberating people from the oppression of nine to five work, all kinds of ideas about how to change society. And, you know, really like five years later, everyone was getting an MBA. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> you know, how did that happen? How was that the, you know, how is that the upshot of all these kind of marvelous utopian visions that were coming out of these meetings that women were having at the time? Um, and so I think that having women in the workforce has given the impression that women have made huge advances. And Roe v. Wade was a big advance. Um, and there were laws in the 70s that were big advances, but they've all been chipped away at. It was a very, it was a blip. The only thing that stayed was women stayed in the workforce, but all of the, you know, equal pay, the, the ERA still hasn't even passed. I mean, come on. And now Roe v. Wade is going away. You know, I, I think the sexism in this country is so deep and I feel it all the time. You know, I feel like just walking around in the world, it's it's a hum. It's a hum I hear all the time. And I wanted to portray it in the book. I'm so glad you said that and put it that way because that's the way I was thinking about it in the book. Like these are all highly intelligent women who are 
making a lot of choices about their lives and um, how they relate to other people, but it's within that hum. It's mm -hmm. there. It's there. And um, they hear it. There's that scene on the uh, on the whale watching ship in Bar Harbor mm -hmm. with Polly and Agnes and the young um, nieces, and they appear at first to be to be different in the way they they feel and understand the world, and yet it it's you you represent how they are um, drawn into the kind of the the web of of men based on, you know, an interest in being seen as desirable. Yeah. And I think Agnes and Polly note that and think, you know, they don't say it explicitly, but it's clear by the way they react to it, that they're sad that this yeah. next generation is having that same experience. Exactly. I think they feel very sad about it. And yeah, I mean, I, there's no, I don't offer any answers to that. I just wanted to portray it. Um, you said the levers of power are slightly different. I think that's true. Um, but I still see it as like a major driving factor of how things work in this country. And I'll probably always be writing about it. One of my favorite characters is Maud, who in some ways offers a different path towards an independent life. If not unburdened by the needs and impositions of men, she is at least standing on her own in motherhood, her ambitions, and her loyalties. Is she what Agnes might have hoped for as a different path? I think, I think she probably would have. Although I, I did draw parallels between them of Maud having to take care of her mother, and Agnes right. having taken care. of both her parents and her sister, um, when they were ill, she's had, she, you know, Agnes had a 10 year period of just being a caretaker. And then at the end of it, when she turns 40, she's told by the banker, you're not going to have enough money to keep fellowship point. Sorry. And then, you know, she really goes into having a career writing children's books because she has to make money. And similar to Maud, she is a single mother. And she very much feels that she has to make money, but she also wants to. You know, that's the upside of women coming into the workforce. They do have all these interesting opportunities. And she is very targeted about what she wants to do with her life. Um, it's being a, an editor and particularly working with the children's books that Agnes wrote, which meant a lot to her growing up. Um, so, yes, I mean, I think. Agnes has to move home when she's 20, in her 20s. When she doesn't get married, she moves home to, and she kind of lives with her parents for the rest of their lives. And um, Maud does too, but it's for slightly different reasons, I think. I think we see at the end of the book that Maud has a bright, hopeful future. Agnes is a writer who has produced beloved children's books and novels for adults under a pen name. She holds her writing life dearly, and she has the privilege to work uninterrupted almost every day of her adult life. Despite its solitary work, writing for Agnes is a way of loving and mourning. 
She writes for the child, Nan, who died before she could leave childhood. She writes to mourn a lost love and to commemorate friendship. What for you is the writing life? And is, is it a site of love, mourning, and friendship? I would say it is. And that's an interesting question because it definitely changed for me over time. I was a child writer and I wrote both because I loved reading and I wanted to imitate what I was reading, the, imitate the books that really stimulated me. But it was also an escape for me. Definitely go up to my room and write for hours, that sort of thing. But I think when I was, I can't even remember how old I was, but I was reading a little biography of Percy Shelley, and I'm thinking it was by Muriel Spark. Does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. um, and she had just such a beautiful sentence in that book that said that he was fully in the world when he was writing, that he wasn't holding himself apart from people. He was actually, you know, going closer to life. And that just struck me so deeply because I thought, yes, that's exactly what I've been trying to articulate to myself, that I'm not being antisocial. You know, I'm actually going to a place of trying to understand people more deeply and trying to get closer in ways that I can't in life all the time. When I'm writing, I can do it every day. You know, I can go very close to what a person is really like and how they make decisions and how they make choices. And I do have a lot of grief in this book. And I think grief is like a very deep part of my personality structure. And it just comes out. I don't even think about it. It just comes out because it's I'm built that way, you know, for various personal reasons. But I don't know. I don't write for therapy. It's not like that. I one thing I think about a lot is how people change. And I would say to me, this book is how do people who are 80 actually change? Is it even possible? I mean, I, you know, I went in thinking it was possible, but it is like the metaphor in my mind is um, turning a huge ocean liner with like one of those old fashioned, like, <laughs> One of those, like, just like turning that wheel, you know, <laughs> at making it happen, which I think is why the book is so long and has to be long, is to make a change really believable and not like Ebenezer Scrooge kind of change, but like a really believable change that happens on earth with people changing each other. It takes a long time to persuade that it really can happen. So I write into that too, like how, what are these incremental steps that people take to change? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that really interests me, the artifice of it, making it look real, but I'm very aware of the artifice all the time. There, it's almost as if that the, the older we get, the more we carry this trail of experiences as a kind of weight. And so to make that, that turn, to make that ship turn, you have to carry that 
that weight along with you. And, and that's what a longer book like this does. You, you feel the weight of those past experiences and memories in it and how, what it takes to kind of shift all that with you. It's not just like a child turning on a dime. It's something quite different. Yeah, that's so true, Chris. And it goes back to your earlier question, why write about 80-year-olds? It was not calculated on my part, but as I, I found as I went into the book that I had a lot of what had happened in their past to draw on dramatically. I'm very resistant to explaining anything in books, like to explaining why someone is the way they are. But I think the past is full of dramatic possibility when it's brought into the present at the right moment. And because they had long pasts, yes, there was a lot to choose from. And that was something, you know, I wrote into Dead Ends quite a bit before I found the right, the right moments of the past that would actually um, intersect with the present drama in ways that could shift it. A number of people have compared this novel to George Eliot's Middlemarch. I think perhaps a better analogy is Mill on the Floss, Eliot's quasi-autobiographical portrait of the joys and traumas of childhood and how they're reflected in adult society. But I wanted to drill down on the idea of writing like Eliot. She, like you, often used a third-person narrative to wander amongst her characters and gather the zeitgeist of a society. However, it is more likely that when you are compared to Eliot, you're being positioned as a classic novelist of plot, character, and style. Do you see the similarities with Eliot? And what do you think Fellowship Point is doing with the novel form that reads as classic? Well, I would never compare myself as George Eliot, but I understand the question. I was wanting to write a 19th century style novel. And I am familiar with her work. I love The Mill on the Floss. I didn't, I haven't read it for a while, but I, there are very particular scenes that are so vivid in my mind from that book. It's so beautiful. Um, I think what the comparison is, is probably the things I was trying to figure out how to do, which is to create a central plot and then real subplots that intersect with the main plot in ways that change it. Having a big plot, having big characters. The thing I love about Middlemarch, and I suppose I'm naturally drawn to something similar. And and you put it there, the you know the the observations. Um, the characters make about each other. I mean, she has such a huge cast of characters. Mine is, mine is much smaller, but just every single person having a view on the others in a way that's just so fascinating. Um, she builds it so well. I mean, that's just that's like an amazing book. I love the I love the opening of that book about Saint Teresa. I, mm-hmm. I I really envy that. I mean, that's just that was just so brilliant. Never get over that. But yeah, I did want to write a 19th century style novel with women as landowners, which they never are mm-hmm. in those novels. And just you know, that was sort of like a, a just a guiding plot idea for the book. I do 
love those kind of novels for their pretense to representing reality. Mm-hmm. I don't think they do at all. Um, but I do think they demonstrate ways that people interact and ways that people change that I really like. Um, and they do it on a big, big scale, which I love too. Yeah, it's the that big scale and the ability to observe over time, both fictional time, but also the time of reading that I feel like allows a, a kind of deep investment in in the fictionality that is put before us. And I and while I love short novels as well, I feel that there's something different in our relationship to these novels that perforce their length we spend longer time with. I agree with that. I just finished rereading the Neapolitan Quartet. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to teach it. To, I'm going to teach it to undergrads this fall, just the first two books, and then I'm going to teach all of it in the spring to my grad students. And I really love it as a very long novel, as she wrote it, um, or he wrote it, whoever wrote it, uh, you know, as one long novel. And I want to write a novel like that. That's like 2000 pages. I really love the scope of it. And everything you just said, the passage of time reading, you know, being engaged with this other world for so many hours as a reader, it does do something to you. Um, it has an effect on you. And when I just read, reread the end of it yesterday, and even, well, okay, to go back a day before that, I was getting to the end and I texted um, one of my former students and said, okay, which, which Knausgaard should I read? Because I knew he'd read all of them. And he, was, he was pushing them on me and I was resisting, resisting. And I was like, no, I want to read another long novel. I call that a novel. I want to read another like massive novel like this. Because I find that form really interesting and it's different than the 19th century novel, but it has those properties of covering a vast amount of time and asking a lot of time of the reader as well, which I think Mm -hmm. is very fascinating. And it's it's so uh, inimical to every other way we experience culture these days, which is so, so, you know, which is so, so brief and so flashing. Um, But I kind of love that these authors have taken, so like, nope, I'm... (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to make you read even more than Trollope did. You're going to be reading for weeks. (laughs) It it takes a choice for both reader and writer to, as you say, stand against basically every other cultural uh, input that we have. Yeah. Which exists as these momentary brief flashes of spectacle. And you have to resist it to do it. You have to put your phone somewhere else. You have to be away from screens. And then you can languish in um, an extraordinary world that asks of you your time. Yeah, and I, that really appeals to me a lot. And I think it's, I, you know, I do think there is in all artists to some degree, but particularly in novelists who want to work with a long book, there is a certain stubbornness to insisting on taking up that much space and you know some of it can be egotistical but i think a lot of it is just 
wanting to really give characters their due mm. and that you know they're wonderful short novels that give characters their due but not in the same way with you know with taking that amount of time um it's interesting because i i don't value one over the other but i did enjoy writing something that was long i mean it was mine was long it was much longer than it is now um, and I really enjoyed just going into an imaginative space that was so consuming. Mm -hmm. And I thought there was a lot of room to really become philosophically more sophisticated. I don't know. I mean, I could talk about this in all kinds of ways, but it had a lot of effect on me to make that choice and to stick with it and to see how it changed me just as I was looking at the possibility of change for the characters, it, it did change me to write such a, a long book. It's it's very clear how much your enjoyment is in that fictional world, which I think is so crucial to how we experience the novel as, as readers. It is a, a, a space of pleasure for you very clearly. It definitely was a space of pleasure for me. You know, I would say I come into things as much as the characters come to me almost as apparitions and I just start following them around, I'm a little suspicious of them at first and it takes me a while to really love them, but then I do. And once I really love them, you know, I'm much more able to write with affection about everything they do, good or bad, because I just, you know, I just see them maybe maybe in that 19th century way where they said authors were godlike, where it's your creature, you know, it's your creature. And yes, they're not perfect, but that's fine. They don't have to be, you know, they don't have to be in a book because they're not really hurting anybody in the world. Hmm. Much of this novel exists in spaces of extraordinary privilege. Agnes and Polly want for nothing materially. They have housemaids and cooks, and they have the luxury of owning houses that abut an extraordinary natural preserve called the sanctuary or the sank. One of the main through lines of the plot is Agnes's conviction that the wealthy owners of the houses on Fellowship Point should give the sanctuary to a nature preserve. Her decision illustrates the paradox of private ownership of natural lands. Could you talk a bit of why you wanted to delve into the question of who gets to own land? Part of it's just personal because I've never understood the idea of owning land. It just seems absurd to me. I'm looking out my window right now and I see, you know, I can see four little plots from my house, the next house, the next you know, little suburban plots with fences. And it just, you know, there's something about that that just doesn't ring true to reality. Speaking of reality, it doesn't ring true to reality. It's just like a made up construct. So I wanted to write about people who did not have an attachment to the idea of land in the same way as um, you know, in the same way as we're kind of culturally taught that owning land is such a great value in America. Um, and I, and part of that happened because 
my very dear friend works in conservation in California and has for a long time with a lot of different land trusts. And she told me at one point that so many of the old ranches and um, big tracts of land ended up in the hands of a granddaughter or a great granddaughter. And they gave them away. You know, it had traveled down through lines until it got to the granddaughter. And they just, you know, they just gave it away. They gave it to the University of California. They gave it to a land trust. And so I started researching how much land in this country has been given to parks, to land trusts, et cetera, by women. Very interesting story. I mean, that could be a whole book in itself. Um, not much known, but women didn't have control over lands they owned fully in the United States till the year 1900, which was very recently, really. Mm-hmm. So I definitely got the idea that, that you know, I kept saying to myself, women walk lightly on the land. That was one of the things I thought about when I was writing the book, that, you know, they don't feel that they have to pass the land in the same way to have a legacy. Um, they, especially Agnes, just wants the land to remain the same. Of course, and I hope this comes through in the book, I think I had a moment at the end where it's stated pretty directly to Polly, but, you know, they developed the land themselves. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what, you know, there is a paradox in some of these, you know, 20th century ideas, I think of them, or 19th century ideas of conservation as a benevolent and, you know, high-minded rich person maintains a huge piece of land in a fairly natural state. But, you know, I, I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's a contradiction right in the middle of that, that um, I wanted to sort of poke fun at in this book. And, and, you know, that they, they think they know best what to do with it. That is challenged um, in the book. But I think that attitude still is pretty pervasive um, among a lot of people. Absolutely. I think, and you get to the the deep paradox of it so clearly in in the novel. Before I let you go, I would love for you to share some books that have been meaningful to you recently and perhaps a title or two that you return to for inspiration. As I said, I just reread the Neapolitan Quartet and I'm interested in learning it. Uh, Right now I'm interested in learning books um, that I've read before, but now I want to learn them better. So I reread this summer I reread The Catherine Wheel by Jean Stafford, which when I reread it, I realized it had a big influence on me. I don't know if you've read it, but it's made. I haven't read it. Oh, it's such a good book. It's not a perfect book, but, you know, and people don't read it because it's not as big as her other books, but I love it. I don't think there's sentences like hers anywhere in the English language. Oh, wow. Um so I reread that. I reread The Professor's House by Willa Cather, which is a book I really love. And I'm thinking of doing a fan fiction of one day. Um, oh, that would be magnificent. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I, you know, I teach this class called Literary Fan Fiction. And it's so much fun to look at books that have been written off of other books. 
And that's the one I would do if I get around to it, because I'd love to write into her thinking about the novel, her form of modernism and, and the innovations she came up with. But also it's about a professor. And there's some really strange images in that book that would be fun to play with anyway. I'm a big fan of the professor's house. Are you? Oh, yes. That's so fantastic. Oh, good. Festival Days by Joanne Beard. She's a friend of mine. She's totally a genius. And that book is amazing. It's a combination of essays and short stories. Her stories are incredible. She has a way of writing personal essays that is different from anyone else. And I love that book and I dip into it often. I keep Upstream by Mary Oliver on my bedside table. That's probably my favorite book. Um, it's a little book. There are little biographies of authors in the book that are like three pages long that are so illuminating. I mean, mm, it's, not, it's not poetry. There's one or two poems in the book. But it's mostly essays, it's nature essays, and then these little biographies of authors who meant a lot to her when she was becoming a writer. And they're so good. I mean, she just gets right to the heart of these people. And I aspire to that kind of compression. It doesn't seem like it after fellowship, <laughs> but, but I really admire it. Um, I'm, you know, I'm prepping for school, so I'm reading, rereading Dreaming by the Book by Elaine Scarry, professor at Harvard. Do you know that book? I do, yeah. It's so interesting, and I still don't entirely understand it. I keep <laughs> rereading it. Like, I did that with Mystery and Manners for about 10 years. I, the first time I read it, I thought, okay, if I understand this book, I'm going to understand about writing. And I kept rereading it until I finally was like, okay, now I understand what she's saying. And I feel the same with, with um, Dreaming by the Book. I'm learning it, you know, as I go along. Sometimes I do it with my students and they explain to me things about it that I didn't quite get. Oh, that's good. Thank <laughs> you. That was very helpful. I, I found it very important to me when I was in graduate school, but I won't say that I understood it per se. Well, um, thank you for that. Yeah, it's it's so complex and it's just really fascinating. And I love reading really good books about writing. And I think that and mystery manners are two of them. Mystery and manners are two of them that have spoken to me. You know, it's it's so individual with that kind of thing. What actually helps you? or affects you. I just read Orwell's Roses by Rebecca Solnit. I kind of read anything that she comes out with. And I actually she like can the, write about anything and make anything. it compelling. So good. And I actually listen to the audiobook because she reads it. I love her voice. I have all the I have all her books that she reads on audiobook too. Um, oh, that's a great recommendation. I don't know what her voice sounds like. Oh, I'll have it's, to it's I'll have really, to listen. It's very appealing and also compelling. And you kind of hear her phrasing, which is a little bit different. For me, at least, it's different than, than the way I read it on the page. Um, what else did I just read? Oh, I just read O. William by Elizabeth Strout, which I really liked a lot. 
it was actually my favorite book of hers. I've read all of her books. Oh, that's and great. That's it's, is it the new one? It's the new one. And I, you know, I don't, I think other people have other favorite books, but it's, um, I really love this one because it was just freer, you know, it was, I love people who write, been writing for a long time and they loosen up and you mm -hmm. see it. And I, I read that you're writing a book about Ishiguru. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. What's your, what book of his do you like the most? I was really curious For me, if you have one. I, I do. For me, it's never let me go. That's such a brilliant book, isn't it? Oh, I, I, it stays with me perhaps more than any other book. I've read all his books. Do you have a favorite? I think my favorite is the unconsoled. Just, I just identify with that book. <laughs> I mean, I love, I love the sense of disorientation, but I love all his books. He's one of my very, very favorite writers. <laughs> You're you're probably one of only a handful of people who who count the unconsoled as their favorite. I think it's an extraordinary work, but it's so rarely read. It well, it's hard, you know. It's long for one thing, and it's disorienting right from the beginning. I mean, it's you know something I love about him is just all the char you know how the characters understand the world and how they are always struggling to understand whatever world they're in, in every book. It's so, it's just such a great, huge theme and he does it so well. And he plays with different genres to get at it from different angles. But that one, it's, it's so blatant and it's like being in another country, not being able to understand what people are saying, lost in the hotel. I don't know everything about it. I was like, this is so psychologically deep. I'm never going to read a book this deep. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've described so well why I love Ishiguro. And thank you for these wonderful recommendations. But most of all, thank you for Fellowship Point. Alice, it was so great to be able to talk to you about this magnificent novel. Thank you so much, Chris. This has really been a pleasure for me. And for me, too. Well, that's all from me for now. My eternal thanks to the wonderful Alice Elliot Dark, who has helped me properly celebrate this anniversary show. You can find her excellent recommendations at our website, burnedbybooks.com, where you'll find links to all our previous 49 episodes, as well as links to purchase recommended books from local bookstores. You'll also find our podcast t-shirt, now more affordable, but with a fabulous new design featuring the show's logo, which was designed by my sister, Kate Salveson. Thank you all so much. And until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Uh -huh.